0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The recent record cold in North America has prompted some to question climate change, so the country's chief scientist weighs in.
1: If you've been hearing that extreme cold spells, like the one that we're having in the United States now, disprove global warming, don't believe it. The fact is that no single weather episode can either prove or disprove global climate change.
0: Presidential science advisor John Holdren explains what's going on. Also, particulate matter and air pollution has some startling extra dangers. What we found was if you are consuming high-fat
2: diet, and on top of that you are inhaling particulate matter, this markedly increases your susceptibility to eventually developing type 2 diabetes.
0: We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt,
0: smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Mercury plummeted this past week as a polar vortex gripped much of North America with Arctic temperatures. Given the deep freeze, several pundits have been arguing that climate change isn't real. But the White House science advisor begs to differ. Though he's quick to point out that no one weather event can directly be attributed to global warming, Nobel Prize-winning physicist John Holdren explains in a pre-recorded video that extreme temperatures could be the new normal precisely because of climate change.
1: But a growing body of evidence suggests that the kind of extreme cold being experienced by much of the United States as we speak is a pattern that we can expect to see with increasing frequency as global warming continues. And the reason is this. In the warming world that we're experiencing, the far north, the Arctic, is warming roughly twice as rapidly as the mid-latitudes, such as the United States. That means that the temperature difference between the Arctic and the mid-latitudes is shrinking. And that temperature difference is what drives what is called the circumpolar vortex, which is the great counterclockwise swirling mass of cold air that hovers over the Arctic. As the temperature difference between the Arctic and the mid-latitudes declines, the polar vortex weakens and it becomes wavier. The waviness means that there can be increased larger excursions of cold air southward, that is into the mid-latitudes, and in the other phase of the wave, increased excursions of relatively warmer mid-latitude air into the far north. Computer models tell us that there are many different factors influencing these patterns, and as in all science, there will be continuing debate about exactly what is happening, but I believe the odds are that we can expect as a result of global warming to see more of this pattern of extreme cold in the mid-latitudes and some extreme warm in the far north.
0: White House science advisor John Holdren. Now the increased development and use of natural gas is part of the White House's all of the above strategy for addressing climate change. But while natural gas burns much cleaner than coal or oil, the hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, used to extract the gas from deep underground has generated controversy, especially its impact on water. Fracking uses huge quantities of water, and there are also concerns that it can foul the underground reservoirs of water that people tap for wells. Now, an investigation by the Associated Press has documented hundreds of complaints of drinking water contamination near fracking operations in Pennsylvania, Texas, Ohio, and West Virginia. And Kevin Bigos, an AP reporter based in Pittsburgh, says at times government authorities have tried to block the release of this information.
4: We started asking these questions two years ago. One of my colleagues, Michael Rubenkamp, tried to get records from Pennsylvania on the uh, contamination complaints, and we had a long series of legal battles to get them under the state's right-to-know law. But then we just tried asking four states to give us their most recent documents on the number of complaints. You know, we didn't file a lawsuit or a right-to-know. We just acted as if We were an average member of the public or a journalist starting from scratch.
0: So what exactly did they give you, these four states?
4: We were surprised that it varied widely. Texas gave far more data. For example, the date of each complaint, the well location, summary of the type of complaint, the status of the complaint. Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. More just gave very rough summaries. Here's the numbers of complaints we have here's the numbers we've confirmed, but there's still a lot of unknowns about uh, the Pennsylvania data and the other states.
0: How many complaints did you find records of?
4: Pennsylvania had 398 in 2013 and 499 in 2012. Ohio had, starting in 2010, 37, then it went up to 54, then 59 in 2012. West Virginia had a total of about 122 complaints over the past four years. Texas had a smaller number, 62 water well complaints, even though they had had more than 2,000 complaints in general about uh, oil or gas drilling impacting property.
0: And of these complaints, uh, how many were deemed uh, valid by the state?
4: Pennsylvania has confirmed at least 106 since uh, 2005. Texas says they've confirmed none of the alleged water well contaminations. West Virginia said four cases. The evidence was strong enough that the driller took corrective action. And uh, Ohio, six confirmed cases. So one of the big questions is, you know, are these investigations rigorous enough? You know, how have they been conducted? You know, is this a realistic snapshot of how many people really have problems?
0: What kind of contamination are we talking about here for water wells?
4: Some of the best researchers have been finding that methane seems to be by far the, the most common problem. You know, there's been tremendous debate over whether any of the fracking chemicals get into water wells. But in practical terms, a lot of people are having much simpler problems, just things, uh, for example something spilling on the surface and going into a creek or, you know, impacting a well or the methane, the natural, you know, excessive natural gas in a well. So it's really not just about the chemicals. It's it's sometimes about more run-of-the-mill pollution. Excessive natural gas, uh, methane in a well,
0: I mean, what are the odds that it could go boom?
4: They have uh, actually a baseline where they consider that the danger of it exploding. And they're finding, you know, small numbers of wells with that excessive high methane, some of them closer to natural gas drilling sites. Occasionally, some of those just natural water wells have very high methane. So that's what makes it difficult to investigate, separating the, the background problems from the possibly drilling-related problems.
0: This volume of complaints that you found in Pennsylvania, what's your sense uh, of how many wells might in fact be affected as opposed to people speaking up?
4: See, that's where it's impossible to speculate. And that was really the bigger point we're making is, you know, anybody can guess at these things or give opinions that, uh, you know, hardly any of them are contaminated or many of them are contaminated, but that's just guesswork. You know, there really needs to be more disclosure. So that question can be answered. And that's what makes people fearful. Some of the experts have said is that the uncertainty is perhaps even worse than whatever the truth is.
0: So after doing all this reporting, um, what's your impression of this groundwater question? What's the the takeaway?
4: You know, one of the experts we spoke to has pointed out that people are incredibly sensitive about groundwater contamination. I mean, there's all sorts of issues in modern life, you know, air pollution and various water pollution or things people are worried about. But Drinking water pollution really worries people, It, uh, you know, the potential for it. And that's, I think, part of the tremendous concern over fracking. Uh, you know, you can't necessarily see it. It's happening deep underground. And that makes it harder for people to, you know, know what is or isn't happening. And that's why people are asking so many questions. Kevin Bigos reports for the Associated Press from
0: Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thanks so much, Kevin, for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. One man's trash is sometimes another man's treasure, and that may be the case when it comes to water quality issues in Pennsylvania. There are also thousands of abandoned mines that leach metals and other pollutants into the state's streams. And now it appears that fracking could actually be one way to clean up this water, and some in the gas industry are pushing legislation to allow it. Reed Frazier of the public radio program, The Allegheny Front, caught up with some folks
5: who are demonstrating the potential of recycling old mining water through fracking. Bill Sabatoss stands in a small industrial building. He's on a platform next to what looks like a big hot tub filled with really dirty water.
6: We're aerating it. We're trying to oxidize the iron. So you can see how blood red it's getting.
5: The liquid is Abandoned Mine Drainage, or AMD. This AMD came from a mine just up the hill. Sabatos has spent much of his life cleaning up this dirty water. He's president of the Toby Creek Watershed Association, a local group that built and now runs this facility in northwestern Pennsylvania. The facility passes the AMD through a series of treatments. At the end of the line, it flows into a tank the size of an above-ground pool. The water here is clear.
6: Uh, in this particular tank, we're raising brown trout. And uh, a lot of people just love to come up here and look at them. I guess it memorizes them. They just look like a big aquarium.
5: The fish will be used to stock streams around the state. The clean water in the tank eventually runs into the Brandy Camp Creek, a tributary to the Allegheny River. Sabatas grew up here near the town of Brockway. The region has a long mining history, The streams all used to be the color of rust.
6: There wasn't a fish in in, in 100 miles of this place, so it it was pretty bad.
5: Since the group built this treatment plant in 2005 with a state grant, the Brandy Camp started getting cleaner. But there was a problem. The watershed group had no idea how it would pay to keep the plant running.
1: It was scary because we didn't have a plan.
5: Then around five years ago, a potential solution emerged fracking. Drillers use millions of gallons of water, along with sand and chemicals, to frack natural gas out of underground rock formations. Frackers typically use fresh water. But a few companies approached Sabatoss with an idea. Could they use his cleaned-up mine water?
6: Well, I thought, well, there's all this water, and I need more money to treat all of it. And I thought, well, you know, they were looking for water. I said, try it. And they
5: tried it. And it worked. The gas companies paid Sabotas' group for the water, although technically it's a donation, and with the money, the group could treat more abandoned mine drainage. This idea of using old mine water to frack is picking up steam in Pennsylvania. Regulators, faced with a $15 billion abandoned mine problem, want to see more of this. They see it as one way to get AMD out of streams by putting it into fracked wells. Some companies have already started doing it but others are balking. Andrew Patterson of the Marcellus Shale Coalition says the issue is liability.
7: The you-touch-it-you-own-it concept?
5: He says drillers are worried that they'd be held liable for the condition of the abandoned mine in perpetuity, even if they only used the water for a few months.
7: It's not clear on
1: either a state or federal basis that if you were to use that water, that by using it you had not inherited the long-term treatment
6: of that source of water.
5: Watershed groups like Sabotas' don't have to worry about this. State law protects them from lawsuits over the mine water they treat because they're considered good Samaritans. A bill being pushed by the gas industry and the state's Department of Environmental Protection would add gas companies to that list of good Samaritans. Well, we see this as a lose-lose-lose. Tracy Carluccio is with Delaware Riverkeeper, an environmental group. She says gas companies are not good Samaritans. Under the bill, companies wouldn't have to clean up the mine water or buy it from groups like Sabatosses. They could simply withdraw the water they need from a polluted mine. They're not cleaning it up. They're simply taking very polluted fluids and making them more polluted. But some see this as a way to peck away at the state's historic abandoned mine water problem. Radisov Vidic is an engineer at the University of Pittsburgh. He says allowing frackers to use mine water keeps that water from polluting the rivers.
1: If you think about it, AMD is already killing the fish in the streams. If you take it out and prevent it from going into the streams or you clean it up before it goes into the streams, you can only make it better.
5: Even if the bill passes, no one's promising that fracking could solve the state's abandoned mine water problems at current funding levels Cleanup of the thousands of historic coal mines in Pennsylvania is projected to take up to 50 years.
0: Reed Frazier brought us that report from the Pennsylvania public radio program, The Allegheny Front. Coming up... With carbon dioxide levels higher than they've been in over a million years, we debate taking drastic action to cool the planet. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Since we started farming in the Fertile Crescent over 10,000 years ago, human activities have been altering the climate. But since we started burning vast quantities of fossil fuels about 200 years ago, emissions of CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere have soared to levels not known in more than a million years and heated the planet to levels not seen since civilization emerged. So scientists have started to contemplate the once unthinkable and impossible, find a way to take carbon out of the atmosphere and cool the planet. And there are
5: ways we might possibly do that.
8: We could plant billions of trees.
5: We could use chemical sponges to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere, then bury them. Or we could block some of the sun's heat from the earth with a cloud of droplets of sulfur dioxide. Well, some
0: scientists argue that last solution, a solar shield, is the most plausible. They point to the effects of eruptions from volcanoes like Mount Pinatubo for evidence that it works. We've invited into our studio two highly regarded experts with decidedly different views to debate the issue. And what we might call the blue corner is David Keith, who divides his time between Harvard University and a carbon engineering company in Calgary, and is author of a recently published book, A Case for Climate Engineering. David Keith, welcome to Living on Earth.
8: Thanks a lot. Great to be here.
0: And over in the red corner, we have Clive Hamilton. He's a professor of public ethics at the Center for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics at the Charles Sturt University in Canberra, Australia. And his recent book Is called Earthmasters, the Dawn of Climate Engineering. Professor, welcome to you. It's
7: good to be here.
0: So, gentlemen, let's agree at the very beginning that your views aren't entirely opposite. In fact, both of you say that any attempt at geoengineering would be very serious, even potentially a hazardous step to take. But why do we need to do this? David Keith, uh, sum up for us uh, basically this case for geoengineering.
8: The simple case for taking seriously the idea that we might find technological ways to increase the reflectivity of the Earth, say by putting a kind of pollutant sulfuric acid in the upper atmosphere to reflect away a little sunlight and and cool the planet, the scientific case for doing that is that it appears on technical grounds that it could, in a temporary and imperfect way, substantially reduce the risks from carbon in the atmosphere. It's one of the few ways we know to materially reduce the risks over, say, the next half century, risk that will fall most on people who are relatively poor and vulnerable living in the hottest parts of the world, and also risk to the natural world that is seeing unprecedented levels of climate change.
0: Sounds all very reasonable, Clive Hamilton. Uh, What's the problem?
7: Well, when we think about it a bit more, the proposal is to coat the Earth with a layer of tiny sulfate particles to reduce the amount of sunlight that reaches planet Earth. First of all, we're not actually tackling the problem of climate change. We're just suppressing one of its symptoms, that is the warming of the globe. But the other impacts of climate change will continue, for example, and in particular, uh, the continued acidification of the oceans. And one of the biggest problems with this solar shield would be that we can't test it. We can't do it in a small way to see if it would work in a big way. In order to see if it would actually work in the way anticipated, as in David's book, we would have to actually implement it, install the solar shield, surround the earth with a layer of sulphate aerosols, and then sit back and monitor the climate and hope that it worked. But we know that the climate system is incredibly complex. There'd be surprises, some of them probably nasty, so that we could actually make the situation worse. Well, but what about the fundamental
0: concept here that he's put forward that, hey, we should be looking at engineering solutions that would ameliorate the effects of climate disruption argument?
7: Well, I think geoengineering is a way of trying to get around a social and political problem with some kind of techno fix. And we're talking about taking control of the climate system of planet Earth and regulating it to suit our needs. That if Political leaders believe that they have a technological solution that will obviate the need to take on big fossil fuel corporations, then they will use it as a substitute for doing what they should be doing, that is cutting greenhouse gas emissions. If we think about what it means to try and essentially install a thermostat in the climate system, it raises the fundamental question of who is going to have their hand on the global thermostat. David? I think one thing that uh, Clive does and did here is to
8: attempt to save the people advocating research in this technology like me are doing it as a way to avoid the social change we need. And to put it simply, it's nonsense. So there are lots of reasons why this might be wrong, why my advocacy of this may be dangerous, and I lie awake at night worried about them and did long before Clive first thought of it. So the idea that there's a kind of moral hazard, that this might allow the fossil fuel interest to avoid regulation, I'm the one, I believe, who first used that term, moral hazard, in this debate 15 years ago. So I'm hardly unaware of it. But the idea that I and other people working on this somehow think that this can only be done by technology and that we can avoid a social solution is, at least in my case, utter nonsense. I just have come close to essentially losing my job in Calgary because of clear advocacy that we need social change to eliminate carbon emissions. I think it's kind of a cheap shot. I think Clive needs to take seriously the fact that most of the people working on this actually are very serious about the kind of social change is needed. And we still may be wrong to advocate it. But Clyde needs to take us on on the reasons we 're wrong, not on a kind of ad hominem attack that we really just like techno fixes and want to, as he said in his book, mollify the owners of the
7: fossil fuel infrastructure that 's nonsense but i haven 't claimed that at all uh, I, 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 well actually no, i 'm reading a quote no no i haven 't said that at all. Some of the scientists engaged in advocating geoengineering in fact, most of them i think are motivated by best of concerns. That is, they're deeply concerned about the damage of climate change on people and the natural environment, and they're looking for a solution. I'm not worried so much about the scientists who are doing work on geoengineering. I'm worried about the political and corporate actors who are drawn to geoengineering as a response to climate change. Clive, I'm and, so, and so already we see companies like Exxon and ConocoPhillips and Shell dipping their toes in the water. We see conservative think tanks in Washington saying, aha, here's the answer to um, – climate change. We don't need to reduce carbon emissions. We can instead deploy these geoengineering solutions. So it's not the motives or the work of the scientists engaged in geoengineering that's the problem. It's the people who will take it on as a political solution to climate change. David? On that score, I think the key issue is thinking creatively about how to manage the problem.
8: So specific things like ensuring funding is public, like banning patenting in this area, like finding specific ways to prevent the kind of technological lock-in, and institutional lock-in that will advocate for this solution, even if it turns out to be a bad one.
0: David, Keith, just for the record, um, what funding do you get from the
8: fossil fuel industry? Um, from the fossil fuel industry, zero research funding uh, for a company that I run called Carbon Engineering that's attempting to use methods of getting CO2 out of the atmosphere to develop low-carbon fuels we have some funding from people who are tightly allied to the fossil industry one of them uh, a guy called murray edwards
0: clive hamilton for the record funding from fossil fuel folks or um no 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 well-financed uh, opponents to fossil no, fuel no no no
7: do no. no. right. <laughs> i get paid by my university and some royalties from the book if it sells david
0: keith says that your attacks on his position are well they're ad hominem they're personal they ignore the nuance that he has in his book that He's calling for research on this, that we should understand what the options might possibly be, but to ignore it at this point would be perhaps to do something at our peril.
7: Well, firstly, David has gone beyond just calling for research into sulfate aerosol spraying. Uh, His latest book, in fact, says we should pursue a research program but if uh, the research supports geoengineering's early promise, then he would choose gradual deployment of sulfate aerosol spraying. So the worst I would uh, accuse David of, I think, is naivety in thinking that scientists can go ahead with their research program and somehow now or down the track quarantine their research from the kind of uh, political use will be made of the technology should it prove to live up to what he calls its promise. Because, you know, it won't be David or his fellow scientific researchers who implement to deploy this solar shield around the Earth. It'll be one or more governments. I mean, for example, China is now starting to include uh, geoengineering in its earth science research priorities. Russia, in particular pushed strongly for a strong pro-geoengineering statement in the last IPCC report. So there are lots of political players coming in to this uh, domain and it means that the scientists, and most of them including David, have perfectly good motives in pursuing this, but it's naive to think that you know they're engaged in pure research which can then be assessed and not be taken up by political actors with sometimes quite um, inappropriate and even dangerous motivations. David,
8: uh, (laughs) let let me me try. It would be completely naive. It would be idiotic to say that, which is why I and many people have spent a lot of time thinking explicitly about all the ways this research could be used in horrible ways. So going back to the first thing I wrote in the early 90s, we talked about ways it could be used for war. We talked about ways it could be used to defend entrenched interests. I am acutely and painfully aware of the fact that these are hard political decisions and that the interests of the environmental community development will not be the ones that make the decision. So I think let's go beyond this kind of do we know that or not and talk constructively about how we deal with that problem head on. And to be absolutely clear, this in no way is a substitute for cutting emissions. In the long run, emissions stay in the atmosphere for millennia. And if you don't bring emissions to zero you will have a climate radically different from today's. But the fact that geoengineering can reduce the risk in an imperfect way is not an argument for, on itself for ignoring the possibility of reducing that risk.
0: So, in other words, you're not saying to do this instead of reducing emissions, but do this with a reduction of emissions.
8: Of course, and I'm not just saying it. I've invested far more of my personal time in lobbying to cut emissions and taking personal risks to try and see emission cuts than I have for uh, lobbying for stuff related to geoengineering. But the fact that there's a trade-off here here is not an argument for not using a potentially risk-reducing technology. So if you introduce anti-AIDS drugs, some people will go ahead and have more risky sex. But it would be perverse in the extreme to argue that that is a reason not introduce such drugs. David Keith,
0: right now, what would you recommend the United States do in this area of looking at geoengineering? Suppose uh, we weren't simply talking on the radio program Living on Earth, but we were the White House. You have the president's ear, and uh, you have just a moment to explain why and how we should do this. What would you say?
8: Have a modest and decentralized research program. And so I would advocate a research program that was very careful to be public, to push out private interests. And be careful that the research program spent most of its money actually funding work to find out how it wouldn't work, and only a small amount trying to develop ways it would work. And I wouldn't have that in a single institution because government institutions, just like private industries, suffer from institutional lock-in. And so I would attempt to have a dispersed program with pros and antis separated.
7: Clive Hamilton, how does that sound to you? Well, one of the fascinating things about this uh, push for research into geoengineering and particularly sulfate aerosol spraying is that we've seen a number of conservative think tanks in Washington, like the American Enterprise Institute and the Cato Institute, which for years have been denying that climate change exists, have now come out in favour of sulphate aerosol spraying. So, you know, this sounds weird. How can they advocate a solution to a problem that they've been saying doesn't exist? And you can see why, that actually their arguments are not about the science but are about ideology. So... Whereas climate change represents a drastic failure of the free enterprise system, geoengineering could turn that into a triumph of human ingenuity. Instead of climate change calling on us to be more humble about our relationship to the natural world, geoengineering, the techno-fix to beat all techno-fixes, promises greater mastery over nature. So you can see why these conservative organisations are attracted to this. And that's why whatever the beneficial motives of those doing the research, uh, politically, there's a real quagmire here that could derail the whole process and lead us into a worse world than we're going to have anyway.
0: We're just about out of time here, gentlemen, but uh, David, uh, Clive is saying that uh, this kind of thinking, the, the notion of geoengineering, is leading us into a trap at the end of the day.
8: I think what he's saying is it could, and I agree. I think there's a real risk that just the kind of thing Clive is talking about will happen. I think the answer is it's a new thing and we don't know what will happen. And it's splitting the political dynamic in interesting ways. So on the left, you see people from the green world who really want to see research in this in a serious way and other ones who dead oppose it. And on the right, you see the kind of thing that Clive just talked about. What I hope is we can turn the tables a little bit on Cato and say, well, you can't at the same time say this and deny the science. So let's cut some kind of deal where you accept the rational reality of science and we move towards restricting carbon emissions. Clive Hamilton,
0: what are the deeper ethical implications, do you think, of of geoengineering?
7: One reason why I find geoengineering so fascinating is because it does pose some very deep questions about the state that humanity finds itself in. Here we are transforming the climate system and indeed planet Earth through putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere, which is going to completely change the Earth system for thousands of years. So what kind of creature have we become when we say the answer to this is to take control of the earth system and regulate it to suit our needs? I think this is a very profound event in human history. Sometimes people use this phrase, uh, playing God, this idea that we imagine that we are so omniscient and so omnipotent that we can um, essentially fulfill the role that God traditionally did, and that is to create the circumstances in which life on this planet evolved. So I think there's some very deep theological, philosophical, and ethical questions that geoengineering raises.
0: David, did you want to respond to what Clive just said?
7: Yeah, not to disagree, but to have a different take maybe.
8: It can never make sense to use kind of engineering methods to uh, make nature more natural. I think there is not an easy answer to that, but this anecdote may be helpful. As a boy, I worked on Peregrine Falcon reintroduction with my parents. And that was an engineered system. We built boxes and imported falcons that were bred in captivity from across the country to try and reintroduce them into eastern North America. And that reintroduction program was only conceivable because we had banned DDT, the thing that had killed them. And, in fact, I would say it worked. We have free-living peregrines now through a combination of DDT and the reintroduction program. And I think you can ask whether it's possible to think about that analogy at global scale. It only makes sense to manage climate if we, in the end, bring emissions to zero. But the fact that that's true doesn't mean it might not also be worth doing some explicit engineering to try and reduce the rates of climate change.
0: Gentlemen, I want to thank you both for taking the time with, uh, with me today. David Keith's book is called A case for climate engineering and clive hamilton's book is called earth masters the dawn of the age of climate engineering thank you both thank you thank you very much Coming up, news of a surprising link between air pollution, diet, and diabetes. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection
3: of the Environment. Supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. And Gilman Ordway, for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Now, here in the U.S., Environmental legislation has helped clean up much of the air we breathe, and the recently published EPA standards for new power plants will do even more in the future if they're implemented. But much of the rest of the world still suffers from bad air. Particulate air pollution is a major health concern for people living in cities around the world and has long been linked to respiratory and cardiovascular health problems. But now, new research out of the University of Maryland suggests a strong link between air pollution, diabetes, and high-fat diets. Joining us now to explain is Dr. Sanjay Rajagopalan, professor of cardiovascular medicine at the University of Maryland. Now, type 2
2: diabetes, or adult onset diabetes, as uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with, is a pandemic that's growing in proportion. We don't understand uh, many of the underpinnings of this disorder. Clearly, we know that physical activity and diet play a role, but there's increasing interest in a number of environmental factors that might predispose to type 2 diabetes. And we got interested in this primarily because type 2 diabetes clearly alters or increases your susceptibility to cardiovascular disease. A lot of the mechanisms that underlie diabetes and cardiovascular disease are are common. Inflammation seems to be a common denominator. And since one of the mechanisms by which air pollution uh, modulates your risk for heart disease is through inflammation, we postulated that perhaps this might be, you know, playing a role in altering an individual, or in this case, an experimental animal susceptibility to diabetes.
0: So could you describe this study for us? What exactly did you do?
2: So this is a follow-up of an earlier study that we uh, did several years ago, where we showed that when you take sedentary mice that are fed a high-fat diet um, and then exposed to air pollution at levels that are very relevant to what uh, an individual might inhale, perhaps in a crowded city like Beijing or New Delhi, that over a period of time, these mice develop an exaggeration of their type 2 diabetes. So uh, ordinarily, when you expose an individual, or in this case an experimental mouse, to high-fat diet, they get diabetes after a, a duration of time. But what we found was uh, juxtaposing air pollution, inhalation, five days a week, uh, as an average, you know, commuter from the suburbs to the city might experience increases the probability or the likelihood of these mice developing diabetes. So in this study, we extended those findings and asked a question to delve more into the mechanisms of how this might happen. So we essentially took mice and, uh, you know, divided them up into different groups, a group that was exposed to dirty air, a group that was exposed to clean air and had two interventions where two groups being exposed to clean air and dirty air were fed high-fat diet, and the other group was essentially fed a normal diet, you know, or a relatively more healthy diet, and exposed to the same interventions of clean air and dirty air. And what we found was if you are consuming high-fat diet, and on top of that you are inhaling particulate matter, this markedly increases your susceptibility to eventually developing
0: type 2 diabetes. How much of a difference is it? Are you twice as likely, four times as likely? Oh,
2: yeah. This uh, magnifies it by approximately two to fourfold.
0: So these
2: mice develop diabetes much sooner. The severity of diabetes is accentuated. There was roughly a doubling of the severity of type 2 diabetes when we put together the dirty air in conjunction with high-fat diet.
0: Now, some people are going to say, okay, these are mice. How relevant to people?
2: Oh, uh, very good question, and I would say that since our initial observation, there have been at least 15 studies that have actually extended these observations and experimental models to large populations and some of these have been done obviously in North America where we you know we live with a relatively uh, clean environment uh, at least from a from an atmospheric standpoint in North America where thanks to regulation put together by congress in the 1970s but despite that even with the levels that we're exposed to in this continent we still see continuing associations between inhaled particulate matter content, and susceptibility to type 2 diabetes. And this has been replicated, obviously, in countries where the levels are 10 to 20 times higher than what we experience on a bad day in North America, in countries like India, for instance, in China, Indonesia, uh, part of the Middle East. And these findings have been replicated in in a multitude of other cohorts in other contexts as well.
0: So at the end of the day, how big of a problem is diabetes globally, and how does that relate to air pollution?
2: Yeah, I think the first question I think is important. I think type 2 diabetes from a global perspective is perhaps one of the most important challenges we as human beings face from a chronic disease standpoint. According to the International Diabetes Federation, the uh, number of type 2 diabetics by 2030 is going to exceed half a billion patients. And this um, in terms of economic costs, is currently costing in 2012 dollars more than close to a half trillion dollars in terms of healthcare costs. So this is a humongous problem. Now, from an individual perspective, air pollution does not have as strong of an association with cardiovascular disease as something like um, hypertension, for instance. But from a population level, considering the fact that air pollution is pervasive, it's present all the time, and nobody is um, you know, immune to the effects unless you're living in Antarctica, this becomes a huge population problem.
0: In this country, we've had a lot of debate over the cost of health care. How much should we be considering the environmental factors when it comes to what it costs for us to take care of people?
2: I think environmental factors are going to be center page in these discussions because there's a growing body of data suggesting that whether it's uh, water or air or things that you eat uh, the, or the packages that food is packed in, all of these things have you know, ever so slight effects on your susceptibility to a number of chronic diseases. And these are things that are the reality of it are really primary prevention measures where if you took care of these issues, you might not have problems to begin with. So these are easy solutions, clearly, you know, when when you start to think about it, but also equally complex in terms of implementing at a societal level because it takes so many different uh, stakeholders to agree and to make these changes, you know, tends to be a lot more complex.
0: Dr. Sanjay Rajagopalan is Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. Thank you so much, Professor. Thanks, Steve, for having me on your show. On the line now from Conyers, Georgia, to look beyond the headlines this week is Peter Dykstra, who publishes the DailyClimate.org and Environmental Health News. Hi there, Peter. Hi, Steve. What you got for us this week?
9: I'm bringing you some big news from the breakfast bowl. Let me ask you a question. Were you a Cheerios kid growing up? Well, of course, weren't we all? Well, the world's most iconic, successful, most enduring cereal brand is going GMO-free, genetically modified organisms. Uh, It's a result of a year-long pressure campaign from some anti-GMO activists. GMO products are are ubiquitous. Uh, Most of our corn and soybean products now are genetically modified. Some scientists, millions of consumers are concerned that it's just not a good way to play with our food.
0: Now, aren't the Cheerios already sold GMO-free in Europe?
9: Uh, You're absolutely right. That's a good point. The primary ingredient in Cheerios, I think everybody who's ever had them knows, is oats. And there's no such thing as genetically modified oats. They're not grown, they're not produced, they don't exist, and therefore they've never been in Cheerios. For the most part, Cheerios were always GMO-free. But their maker, General Mills, has said that it's going to stop using a few side ingredients, like GMO cornstarch and sugar, in the Cheerios that they sell here in the U.S.
0: So it doesn't seem like General Mills is going all in on being GMO-free.
9: No, it's a little bit more like they want to have their GMO-free marketing cachet and and eat their Count chocolate too. General Mills is going to pitch and label its Cheerios as being GMO-free. But on the other hand, the same company was helping to bankroll the defeat of some state ballot initiatives recently in California and Washington state. Those ballot initiatives would have required that any food products that contain GMOs be labeled. Uh, The General Mills Company website says they favor a nationwide standard for labeling GMO-free foods, but when it comes to labeling foods that have GMO in them, uh, they want no part of it, and they're actually working against it.
0: So let's see here. Cheerios has had few GMO issues to begin with. General Mills is on both sides of the fence of this debate. Peter, could this be more about marketing than food safety?
9: Well, it's like what we said before, you get the most enduring, most successful, most iconic cereal brand in the world. So, yeah, marketing might just have a little bit to do with it.
0: Now, let's see. You've found a couple of, well, may I say, unusual headlines from the past
9: week? Yeah, unusual because they're headlines that I simply never thought I would see in my lifetime. And they both hold some encouraging news for clean energy advocates. First one, Evanston, Illinois, just north of Chicago. The Walgreens chain built an off-the-grid pharmacy, an entire store that does not depend on the electrical grid. Instead, they have 800 solar panels, a couple of wind turbines, a thermal system. The whole place not only saves energy, but they generate 28% more than the store uses. That same story, which appeared in the Christian Science Monitor, says that uh, the PNC Bank branch in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, has an energy performance that's just as good. They're also striving for off-the-grid status. The one other headline I never thought I'd see came straight from the New York Times, and the headline has these words in it Solar Power Craze on Wall Street. Uh, the focus is on Elon Musk. He's the guy who helped start PayPal and make it a success. He founded the Tesla Electric Car Company. Uh, he has a new venture called Solar City, it's now the largest producer of home rooftop solar arrays in the U.S. His company stock has grown sevenfold since they launched a few years ago.
0: Wait a second here Peter. I seem to remember that a lot of financial crazes and bubbles don't work out so well.
9: Yeah, you're right. I mean Solar City's arrived financially. This headline Solar Craze on Wall Street is you know, it's kind of a good thing to put on the wall. Um, but on, in the end like a lot of crazes they might get carried out in a coffin just like the internet bubble and the housing bubble. You can even go back to the 17th century and look at the tulip craze that wiped out investors in Holland. But you can't succeed financially if you haven't arrived financially. And here's a sign that solar may have arrived.
0: Finally, Peter, what's on the anniversary calendar for this week?
9: Well, I'm not going to call it my favorite industrial accident of all time because people died in this one. You know, saying it's your favorite is a little bit like hitting the like button on Facebook after you read somebody's obituary. But it was 95 years ago this week. It happened in Boston. It happened not too far from the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios, where you put the show together. And it was the great molasses disaster of 1919. It happened when the temperature abruptly rose from zero to 40 degrees in just a few hours.
0: Well, we've had a fair amount of that this winter right here in
9: Boston. And they had it in 1919 as well. Uh, What happened after the temperature rise is that this immense tank full of molasses, two and a half million gallons of molasses, ruptured it fell apart the molasses came out it wiped two city blocks flattened buildings it killed 21 people this fast-moving heavy sticky tsunami of molasses Uh, like i said i can't call it my favorite accident but it's certainly one of the most bizarre
0: so it wasn't moving as slow as molasses in january then
9: you're right it was the deadly exception to the rule
0: peter dykstra is publisher of environmental health news and the dailyclimate.org thanks so much peter thanks steve talk to you soon You can find links to all these stories at our website, LOE.org. For many people, snakes provoke shudders and an urge to run the other way, especially if the one you encounter is venomous, like the prairie rattlesnake. But deadly or not, this rattlesnake is typically not aggressive and would rather just slither away when it encounters humans. A few months ago, writer Mark Seth Lender met his first prairie rattler in Grasslands National Park and found the creature strangely engaging. Prairie rattlesnake lying in the road, down in the dust, warming
6: her bones. I lie down just across the way to look her in the eye. She stares right back and only raises her head when I shimmy up too close, and only coils and then not all the way, when with too much haste I try to hurry her on before the next car comes. She shows me her rattle without one tick and sticks out her tongue from the jet-black tip to the velvety-purple top to taste the curious scent of me, better if that's where the story ends. Rattlesnake bites you? You're gonna lie right down and dance. Shake and roll all over the place. Dirt in your hair, fear in your face. Ain't no use yelling for help. Should have put your foot down somewhere else. Should have listened. Should have changed course. Snake rattles. That's her only voice. Take a hint. Take her lead. Put your hands in your pockets. Hike up your pants. Jump on your ride and take yourself back. Snake just wants to get away from you. With horror, we watch Rattlesnake consume her prey. The rabbit, completely still, vanishing with inexorable slowness down and down, the snake undulating with what seems like terrible pleasure. Is that not true of you, seated at your overflowing bowl and groaning board, true upon the supermarket shelves and at the corner store? What of the fungi the rattler crawls through at the dark beginning of her day, the fish in the pool gasping at the surface when the snake swam through, to cool her bones in the long heat of the afternoon. Not just the lamb that was the flesh upon your plate, but the wine that was the grape, seeds that were ground that you may break bread, the flour that became the saffron in your rice and the rice, and the aged porcelain with which the potter made the plate. When fire fused the glaze, it burned invisible things, uncountable. Even the ant, automaton of genes, of habit, and the chemistry of scent, and down in the weeds, also what the ant eats, all want to keep on living. Rattlesnake would tell it like this. On a stone set by itself, you may find fresh in the sun my shed skin. Rattlesnake growing and prospering. Take it as a sign. Like you, I pass this way.
0: Mark Seth Lender recorded this warning from the Prairie Rattler. To see some of Mark's close-ups of a prairie rattlesnake, slink on over to our website, LOE.org. Next time on Living on Earth, visiting Fukushima nearly three years after the nuclear catastrophe.
8: I learned this word called gaman, which translates sort of loosely as stoicism, but it's much deeper than that. It's sort of taking pride in being able to survive any situation.
0: Some Japanese are hanging on there without complaint. That's next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes
3: from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of the nation, where you can read such environmental writers as Wen Stevenson, Bill McKibben, Mark Hertzgard and others at thenation.com. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
4: PRI, Public Radio International.